Well, good morning, Sayleville Church. You guys doing good today? Yeah? Good. Praise the Lord. You can open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 10, and we'll be in the first 15 verses. We'll be jumping around uh, throughout the rest of that chapter as well, but mainly the first 15 verses. And we're continuing in our series, The Life of Christ. And this title, and the title of this message is How Jesus Changed the World. How Jesus Changed the World. Uh, I was doing some research and I saw that the New York Daily News came out with a study where they took all these statistics from famous people, whether it was people that followed them or books written about them or Google searches or whatnot, and they, and they came up and they found out that Jesus was the most famous person in history, followed by Napoleon at number two, which was a little surprising. I don't know why they put him up there. And then, of course, our boy Justin Bieber at 8,633. Yeah, there you go. There's the article. Uh, we have to know about the Biebs, right? We got to know. Now, that may not be shocking to you that Jesus is the most famous person in all of history because there's 2.6 billion professing Christians in the world today. So a headline like that, not a big deal. But what may be surprising to you is how few Christians there were at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Look at Acts 1-5 with me. In those days, that is after Jesus ascended back up into heaven, Peter stood among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Think about this, 120. Now, some people think that taking other scripture, that it was probably more along the lines of 500 to 700 followers. I, I think that it's 120, but that's not really the point. Just, just wrap your mind around this for a second. Whether it's 120 or 700 followers of Jesus. Just imagine this for a second. The Son of God, the Son of God who created all things and in whom all things hold together comes down to earth and the most generous number of followers that he accumulated over his three years of ministry and his 33 years of his life here on earth was 700 that's roughly half of the average attendance at Sayville Church. Just to wrap your mind around that for a second. If Jesus' goal was to gather up a large following while he was here on earth, if that was his main goal, then he failed. But that wasn't his goal. Jesus' goal was not to make a big splash in Nazareth in his own hometown to make a name for himself. It wasn't, it wasn't to make a big splash, even in the big city of Jerusalem. It wasn't even to make a big splash in all of the nation of Israel because as John 2.25 says, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what was in their heart. And he knew that if he was to gather this big group following, they're more likely to follow him for their health rather than their heart. Right? So how did the world change like this? How did Jesus change the world in such a way that it went from 
120 scared followers of Jesus up in a room, too afraid to leave because they didn't want, to, they didn't want anything to happen to them, to today where there is 2.6 billion professing Christians in the world. How did that happen? And the answer is it's shocking. And it is that he, Jesus, changed the world through 12 insignificant Jewish men who were radically changed, trained, and sent out to tell the world this message, his message. And this message would change the world, completely change it. it, when, it first get, when it was first getting going, it changed an entire emperor, empire, the Roman Empire, completely changed it. That was unthinkable to the Jews then. What? There's no way that we could infiltrate the Romans. And they did. This message would, would go on and is still continuing today to change entire countries. Entire countries. Take Korea, for example. They went from 1% Christian to 40% Christian in just 100 years. And here's a picture of Billy Graham preaching to 1.1 million Christians in South Korea at one time, one place. Started from 120 scared believers. And it didn't just stop at countries. It's changed entire continents. This statistic blew my mind. Look at Africa. Africa went from 12 million Christians in 1910, which is still a lot, but went from 12 million Christians in 1910 to 685 million Christians in 2021. And the experts say three years from now, it's going to jump up to 760 million Christians, well above 50% of the entire continent of Africa's population. That's amazing. Experts say the same thing's happening in China right now. Don't let some snobby Westerner tell you that, that Christianity is dying just because it might look like it is in Europe or in America. It's not. It's not dying. God's message is going out, and it is changing the world. And shockingly, the most shocking truth about all of this is if you're a Christian here this morning, which is a lot of you, not all of you, but a lot of you, I'm guessing, then you are not an observer to history's biggest movement, because that's what this is. History's biggest movement is occurring right now. And you are not an observer to history's biggest movement. You are called to take part in it. I love documentaries. And I love watching them, and there's something about watching a really good documentary about an event or something that's going on in the, in the documentary that makes you go, I just wish I was a part of that. I wish I was a part of that event or that movement that was occurring. Well, listen, history's biggest movement is taking place right now, and it is not going to be remembered in some biography or some book or some documentary that will be around for a couple hundred years. It will be remembered for all of eternity. And Jesus, or Paul, says in 2 Corinthians 2, you, you Christians, you are ambassadors for Christ. 
Think about this. You are ambassadors for Christ. You are the mouthpiece of God that is pushing this movement forward. God's divine movement forward. And so as we go to Matthew 10, and you look at it with me, Jesus here, he's just got done doing all of these miracles, and the miracles that we heard about last week. And here now he gathers up his disciples, like a lot like a general talking to his army before he goes and sends them out into battle. And that's kind of the picture I want you to have in your head. And so he's talking with his disciples, and he lays out his plan. So what I want to do is I want to join the 12. I want to join the 12 and enter into Jesus' divine plan to change the world. And we're going to get a snippet of that here in Matthew 10. So let's start in verse 1. And the first thing we see in verse 1 is that Jesus' plan was assessed with intentionality. Verse 1 says, And he called to him his 12 disciples. And this is the first thing I want you guys to see. That this, that this, the 12, the 12 were called by Jesus. This wasn't just some cool thing that they just decided to just become a part of. It wasn't a cool fad. They're like, hey, everyone's doing it, so I'm just going to jump on. In fact, the exact opposite happened, right? When Jesus did have a big crowd following him, he said some hard words, all of them left. And he looked around, and he went to his disciples. Are you going to leave me as well? This is a divine calling from God on their hearts. And if you're a Christian, this is the same calling that is on your life right now. Following Jesus' call on your life is not an option. It is an order. It's an order from God. He's calling you if you're a Christian. Let's keep going. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the name of the 12 apostles are these. I'll stop right there. Growth is natural and necessary for health, right? I got a picture of my youngest daughter, and uh, her name's Rama, and she's awesome. I love her. Uh, but this is, the, this is the, my favorite stage in life. Okay, they're like one and a half years old. You can throw them around and they'll land on their head and they're fine. You know, they're like rubber. <laughs> you don't need to worry about that. They're so much fun at this age. They're like naughty. They're wicked, but they're not like super, super wicked. You know what I mean? Like they can't talk back to you yet. I mean, they do, but they don't at the same time. But all I need is one whiff of that little girl's dirty diaper and immediately, I'm looking forward to the day that she grows out of that, right? I just cannot wait for that to happen. And if she weren't to grow out of that, if she was not to grow out from that stage in life, and she was to go on into middle school and high school with a diaper, we, we would know there's something wrong here. She's not growing. She, she's not maturing. And so we see growth in Jesus' plan for the disciples. Look back at verses 1 and 2. He calls them disciples at first, which means learners. And up to this point, that is what they were doing. They were learning from Jesus. They were following him around. Jesus was performing miracles. They were watching. They were learning. But then in verse 2, they're called apostles. And apostles means sent ones. So Jesus 
had been training up the 12 up to this point, but now it's time for them to start doing what they have been consuming, right? So they got to go do something with what they've been consuming. Now, I love food. I hope you do too. It's a great blessing from God, and it's good for you. Food is good for you, but too much food with no activity causes obesity, And let me tell you something, we have a lot of spiritual obesity in the church today. They're shoving their face with so much doctrine and theology, and they do nothing with it, so they just, their heads just get fat with knowledge, and they do nothing. They're spiritually useless, and maybe that's true for some of you in here. Head knowledge with no movement won't change the world accumulating a bunch of knowledge is not going to change the world. It needs to go from your head to your heart to your feet so you do something with it. And Jesus knew that, and that was a part of his plan with the disciples. But there's no better uh, example of Jesus' intentionality than who these 12 men were. They're a fascinating group of people, and if you know your Bible, you know that to be true. But let's look at the list here, picking it up in verse 2 and 4. The name of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, in Acts, later on, after Jesus was was gone, Peter and John were speaking, and the Pharisees are looking at them, and apparently, just by the way that they carried themselves and by the way that they talked, they said, oh yeah, we can tell that you are uneducated and common men. How would you like that if someone said that about you after a conversation? (laughs) Oh, you're uneducated and common, I can see. I can tell. It's very obvious. That's who these men were. There's nothing special about them. They're fishermen. They didn't come from great wealth or great prestige necessarily. And it it reminded me of the Cincinnati Bengals who are playing in the Super Bowl next year (laughs) or next week. That's who they were. They were two years ago, they're an absolute dumpster fire of a team. And somehow they're in the Super Bowl. And you got Peter here, starting off as the leader. Peter's a lot like the quarterback of the group, right? He's the, he's the beloved apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. He's either throwing a 50-yard touchdown pass or he's throwing it to the other team. There's no in-betweens with this guy. <laughs> James and John are called the sons of Zebedee. Uh, or no, they are the sons of Zebedee, and they're called the sons of thunder, which sounds really cool and powerful, but really it's just Jesus is calling them hotheads. They're, he's just saying, you guys have a really anger issue here going on, and you need to deal with it. At one time, they came up to Jesus after uh, a town, a certain town had rejected Jesus, and they go, hey, Jesus, should we like wipe out this town with fire? And Jesus is like, no, no, not a good idea. (laughs) We'll pass on that for now. (laughs) Bartholomew, Nathaniel, or or Nathaniel, rather, Uh, an interesting story about him at the end of John 1 he kind of says this, this racial slur against Jesus. He goes, Jesus of Nazareth? What good could come out of Nazareth? Aren't they just a bunch of hicks up there anyway? What's going on? Thomas, the famous doubter, 
well known for his doubting of Jesus after he rose from the dead. But in Luke 24, we're told that all of the disciples doubted. All of the disciples had the exact same experience as, as Thomas, yet Thomas kind of gets this label here. Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, he's viewed in the Jewish eyes as a traitor because he worked with the Romans. And then Simon was a zealot. He even says it in his name, Simon the Zealot or a revolutionary. And a lot of these zealots were actually trained assassins, which is super fascinating when you think about the fact that Matthew, a tax collector, a traitor to the Jewish people, was right next to Simon, the zealot, the, the, the revolutionary. And I think it was John MacArthur who said, if, if these two were standing next to each other outside of the presence of Jesus, they might have just killed each other. And yet, catch this, and yet, it is these men who Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the entire foundation of our faith is built off of their work. A dozen uneducated, common, insignificant men with polar opposite personalities and polar opposite passions all working together because they were changed by Jesus. Working together to change the world because they were changed. You know, I truly believe that one of Satan's biggest weapons against the church is division among believers. It makes us ineffective. It makes us useless. Because we can't go fight an army in front of us if we're all discombobulated. Do you know what Jesus prayed hours before he died for you specifically? Hours, not weeks, not months, not years, literally hours before he died for you. This is what he prayed in John 17. I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his disciples. But for those who will believe in me through their word, if you're a Christian, that's you. It's a cool thought that Jesus prayed for you, isn't it? And this is what he prayed for you. That they may all be one. If we could take a step back and look at the example of unity that the 12 disciples are showing right in front of us, and we would stop dividing over silly secondhand issues that have nothing to do with the gospel and rather go hand in hand with a fellow believer who loves the gospel, who loves Jesus. He knows who God is. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he needs Jesus to, Jesus to save him from his sin. If we would go hand in hand with these believers, I truly believe that the gates of hell would not prevail against us in the city of Des Moines. Do you? I do believe that. And on a side note, isn't, it, isn't the insignificance of these men so comforting to you? And so motivating. Not just comforting, but motivating. John MacArthur said, The greatness of God's grace is seen in his choosing the undeserving to be his people and the unqualified to do his work. All throughout history, God has chosen the insignificant to accomplish the magnificent. Amen? 
Whether it's the weak with Gideon or whether it's the youngest with David, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And I'm so thankful for that. If you're a Christian in here and you would say, yeah, that's me. I'm insignificant. I'm untalented. I'm common. Well, then be encouraged because you are exactly who God loves to use to change the world. Jesus' plan was assessed with intentionality, and secondly, it was accomplished with a message. Look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So again, you get this military terminology here. Jesus is instructing them. That's like a general of an army giving out commands. And Jesus commands them, don't go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans, but go to the lost house of Israel because he knew that salvation was of the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, as Paul lays out for us in Romans. But I want you to focus on verse 7. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, proclaim. That's the word for preach. That's the word for herald. Shout out from the rooftops that your Messiah, the Son of God, is near. He is here. And because you are sinful, you need to repent. This message that Jesus was telling them to proclaim is simple. It is offensive. And listen to this. This message has the power to save somebody from their sins for all of eternity. Notice what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't say, guys, I need you to go create like the best vision statements you can come up with. I need you to come up and conjure up these evangelistic strategies. This is what I need you to do. He didn't say, I need you to go get seven degrees from the greatest college around so that you can debate and argue. He said, the very first thing I want you to do is to stand up and proclaim and preach this gospel message, my gospel message, and watch what I'll do. Isn't that what he's been doing all throughout history? Didn't he tell Moses, Moses, go slap that stick in the water and watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. All throughout history, the spiritually dead have been raised to life through the preaching of the gospel, through God's word. It started with the prophets in the Old Testament. It continued on in the New Testament, and it is occurring the same way today. This is how people get saved. Listen, say little church, there is no substitute for changing the world than opening up your Bible and proclaiming God's gospel message straight from God's mouth to them. This is where change happens in the world. It's not through your intellect. It's not through your charismatic personality. Changing the world starts with looking at the message that God has given us in his word and being bold with it and telling other people about it. 
my favorite apologist, William Lane Craig. He's a brilliant man. He's the world's leading apologist, super smart. He was asked in a question, uh, when somebody's asking him a question one time, they said, well, what's your favorite argument? Where do you go to when you want to really convince somebody that God exists and that Christianity is true? And he was like incredulous at first. And he looked at him, he goes, I don't go to an argument. I tell him the gospel. I don't care how hard, how much of an atheist they are, you tell somebody the gospel, and you may just watch the gospel wash over their eyes, and they may pass from death to life just because of that. Jeremiah says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? And the answer is yes. God's word is that. God's message is a hammer that can break a dead heart, dead, cold, hard heart, and make it alive. Jesus' plan is also, thirdly, assisted with a method. It's assisted with a method. It was accomplished with a message, and now it's assisted with a method. Look at verse 8 through 13. Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast out demons. You receive without pay, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or tunics for your sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So we see here that Jesus had a method. He had a method. But we also understand, or Jesus understood rather, that methods change. And I know that because later on in his ministry, in Luke twenty-two thirty-six, 36, Jesus himself would say virtually the exact opposite thing as he says right here. He says, hey, you guys remember when I sent you out talking about this story? that we're going over right now. He says this in verse 36 of Luke 22. Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Almost the exact opposite. And here's the point. Jesus wasn't married to his method, but he always had one. He wasn't married to his method, but he always had one. Jesus had a method, The disciples had a method. Paul had a method. And I believe that methods can be God's providential way of getting his message out most effectively. Now, don't get me wrong. The method should never replace or come above the message, right? That should never happen. But hear this. We need method makers in kingdom work. We need them. We need the Abe Millers out here. We need the Jason and Meredith Jacksons who are just smart enough, wise enough to come up with strategies and plans to make more people more like Jesus. And that is exactly who some of you guys are. You're the planners. You are the ones who go, you know what? I'm not the type A personality that's been gifted with evangelism, although I'll be obedient right? Because I know I need to be obedient, but I'm a thinker. I'm a strategizer. We need you to change the world. So ask yourself, are you a method maker? And are you using your gifts for the kingdom? 
And we don't have time to go into all of Jesus' methods here, but let me just point out one, because I think it's universal. I think that no matter what approach you take to trying changing a community through the gospel or, or winning somebody over, your friend or coworker, this should be true about you. Verse 8, Jesus told the 12 to go into the midst of darkness. He told them to go to the sick, go to the dead, go to the diseased, go to the evil, because they are the light of the world. And as Christians, you are the light of the world, and you don't hide light. The purpose of light is to search out where that darkness is and go to it. That is exactly what Christians are called to do. We are not called to isolate, but to illuminate the darkness in homes, in neighborhoods, in schools, in workplaces. You don't look at your neighbor across the street and go, Ah, they're kind of weird. I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk to them about it. You look at the darkness and you go, that's exactly where I'm needed. You, as a Christian, are called to go to the darkness. So ask yourself the question, how are you doing? How are you doing with that? Do you look for the dark areas in your life, at your schools, at your home, at your workplace, in your neighborhood? And do you go to them? And this leads us to our last point here. Because as Christians, when we are joined hand in hand in unity, that's our first point, while proclaiming a message that is offensive, that's our second point, in a place that is dark and evil, that's our third point, then we are headed for rejection. And we are headed for suffering. And that's why Jesus' last part of his plan here is It is advised with a warning, verse 14 and 15. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet, and when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So Jesus knew, he knew that the message he was sending the disciples out with, his apostles out with, would be a message that would be, be rejected by many. It would be rejected. And so he wanted, he wanted to prepare his disciples that if you're going to follow me, if you're going to obey the calling on your life, then it comes at a cost. And just read these verses along with me throughout the rest of this chapter. This is how Jesus warns his disciples. Verse 38 in chapter 10. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Verse 16. I am sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. Verse 17. They will flog you. Verse 21. Brother will deliver up brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Listen, suffering for following Jesus is not an exception. It should be an expectation. 
suffering for following Jesus should not be a surprise. It should be a certainty. Jesus says in verse 25 of the same chapter, if they called the master of the house Beelzebul, that's Satan, what do you think they're going to do to you? What did you expect? They hate me. They're going to kill me. If you follow me, you will experience the same thing. Don't expect anything different. But here's the hope. Look at the end of verse 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And if you're a Christian in this room, you don't need to worry about if you'll endure, but how you'll endure. Because Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I have put my spirit inside of you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Yes, there will be suffering as a Christian. Yes, there will be pain as a Christian. But the Lord will cause you to endure through that suffering until the day that you die and you go into glory. And when you go into glory, you're going to be able to see, as Paul saw in 2 Corinthians 4, this light, light, he says, light momentary affliction was preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And every painful step you take in obedience to Jesus' call on your life is moving history's biggest movement one step closer to the end. Every step of obedience that you do as a Christian in God's call to your life is accomplishing that. Your lives, no matter how insignificant you think they are, are eternally meaningful in the mind of God in his plan. Let me just say one last word. If you look at the end of verse 4, you'll see a name that I didn't really mention much, and his name is Judas. And his well-known name, three years every day with the Son of God and never became a true follower of Jesus. Never truly bowed his knee in submission to who Jesus was. And I have to imagine, as Jesus was giving out these commands, when he came across verse 15, or later on in the chapter, when he says, don't fear people who can hurt your body, but fear him who can kill both soul and spirit in hell, that Judas was shaken a little bit. And in a church like this, I know, I know for a fact that there are some of you who have grown up around this message and you're playing the role of Judas right now. You have grown up around this message, yet you've never truly submitted your life to Christ. And if that's you, then I would just plead with you at the end here. Don't fear man. Don't fear your neighbors or your, your friends who might think you're weird if you accept Christ. Fear him who has the ability to cast both soul and body into the eternal flames for forever. I'm pleading with you. Don't go there. Look at the message that has changed the world. It is a beautiful message of redemption. It is a beautiful message of love. Jesus says, I love you. I've died on the cross for you. Look at that message, believe it, and trust in it, and be saved. As Paul comes out here, um, 
we're going to transition to the Lord's table here. And this is basically the perfect segue because the Lord's table is a time of remembrance. If you're a Christian, it should be your motivation for everything. It should be the motivation for asking yourself the question, am I being sent by God right now? Think about the cross. Think about what Jesus has done for you when you take the cup and the juice, the cup of the bread representing Jesus' perfect life and the juice representing Jesus' death on the cross for your sin. Think and examine your own life, confess sin, and remember what Jesus has done for you. I'll come up here in a couple of minutes and we'll take it together.